for tonight? Any prayers? Can we start? Oh, God. Yes. Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life. Um, from you and for your presence through the day, Holy Spirit, for all the many ways um, you breathe your spirit into us, you're always so um, understated. Um, we get these moments of light and think they're ours and don't realize um, how often you play a part in them. Um, What an example to follow. Christ asks us to be bold, to evangelize, to go out in the world. It's going to be very much at the center of what we're doing tonight, I hope. And yet everything you do is um, quiet, understated, invisible. So <laughs> what you all ask of us is that we go to the world but put ourselves away so that what we're taking is not ourselves, our vanity, or our accomplishments, or um, we're offering our gifts. Um, strengthen us, please, to do that. It's hard to put ourselves away. Um, every one of these works that we've read has helped us because in order to write every one of these works, um, artists had to put themselves away. They could not have done what they did if they hadn't to get themselves out of the way to bring us our world and show us ourselves so all of them are prophetic in some way strengthen us in this gift that we've been receiving all along um, let us not just get smart to read literature so that we know literature we can say we've read Dostoevsky help us to live um, what we're receiving ask for a, um, your care for a young woman and her mother. Um, her mother has chosen to quit chemo and she's concerned about it. Um, Michelle and Debbie. Be with Debbie and her choice. Um, if there's any extra pain, let her know that it's her way of giving herself for you to take on that suffering and quiet Debbie's heart. I ask for prayers here for everybody. Um, so often um, people carry prayers. I know Mary does, Connie does all the time. Um, Chuck and Lori have their daughter in a pregnancy in mind and um, Christopher's son is um, settling into a job and struggling still to, um, to find himself in what he's doing. So. Um, hear our prayers, please, and um, strengthen us in the patience 
um, we need to wait on you, um, to trust in you. A special gift that I'm asking for everybody, lots of people came to you to be healed when you were here on earth. And it was because of their faith that they could be healed. So I ask for a perfect faith, however hard that is for any of us, help each of us to bring to whatever we're doing a perfect faith so that no matter what happens, we're with you. We offer these prayers in your name. Wait, I'd, I'd like to offer a special prayer too for Father Flynn. Um, he's taken on a city. Um, he's doing lots. Um, there's so much good in him. Strengthen him, please, with your wisdom. Help him to grow in it. Um, um, to not take it for granted. Um, he's so busy all the time. Um, help draw him closer to you and everything he's doing always. We'll let it be so for all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Doc, I, don't, I didn't bring it again. Do you have the Shakespeare packet, the poems? <clears throat> for um, <laughs> I was going to offer another prayer, but I'm going to do, I was going to include it, but it's so strange that I'm going to separate. This is a prayer, okay? Thanks. Thanks. Um, this is a special prayer. Um, at St. Francis, um, Father Sojin has I think acting under the direction of the bishop, Fort Worth, so we're under the same diocese bishop, um, to put into effect a, a program um, that's called um, Eucharistic Revival. Are you guys doing that? Because I, I, I talked to our children in Dallas and they've not even heard of it. Are you guys... Is, Father, is anything going on here and sees in the way of a Eucharistic revival? No. We're reading prayers daily at Mass. There's a prayer that's a prayer to be strengthened in our efforts at Eucharistic revival. Morning Mass, they're, they're, um, they're doing adoration more often during the week. And very often after Mass, the priest, Father Sojin will, will sing a prayer. Um, that's part of this Eucharistic revival. We had our grandchildren over last week. If we're looking exhausted, <laughs> do you know why? God. Um, and we said that prayer, I sang it, and they sang it with me. Every time Father sings it, he sings it three times. I'm sure in the name of the Trinity. I'm going to sing it once. You may not want to come back again after you hear this. But <laughs> just. Pardon me, please, if, if my singing grates. Um, I'm going to sing it three times. And I would love it if you joined in it. Simple, okay? So I'm going to speak it and then I'm going to sing it. As a prayer. Because I, I love this song. Absolutely love it. The kid, the kid both of whom are boys. One, what's, um, Michael is what, 11? 13? 11-year-old boy actually sang, if you can believe it. Um, but that's how taking he was. I was really proud of him. But anyway, I told him if he didn't sing, he wasn't going to eat. <laughs> um, the prayer goes, um, 
Lord, prepare me. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Um, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Okay? So it goes something like this. God, I'm not used to... Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Amen. Sing it. Huh? I do too. Father Sojin and I can't meet together outside of Mass without quipping. I mean, it's just a, just a, um, but I told, huh? Quipping. I mean, we just pile cold on each other. It's just a, he's just, he's playful like I am and he just can't stop. Um, but I told him last week that I just loved it when I, I said, you're not going to hear that because he's, but I just love it when he sings it. I, the song is a, it's a beautiful prayer. Sing it during the week or say it during the week. Okay. Okay. Shakespeare's Sonnet 116. I've got to add one sonnet to this collection, but I'll do it another time. Sonnet 116. You remember the 14, or I mean the form, the 14 lines stands in, um, so I don't need to go over it again. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments, Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Love is a fixed thing. No matter what goes on, it holds its center. No matter what the suffering, um, that's where we find Christ. So. Okay. See? That's from that movie. Second sense of 
I know that novel well, but I don't remember. What does she use it? What sake? Sense and sensibility. Yeah, but where in the movie? Uh, it's uh, who's the heroine of the beautiful blonde from, uh, from the Titanic? Uh, Kate, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. Yeah, yeah. She falls With the whole poem or certain lines? Yeah, the, the, the first, I would say the first reporter, and then after he runs off for someone from money, she's on top of the hill in the rainstorm, reciting the song. Yeah. It, it's really so funny. It's yeah. I, I, I have no doubts about this in my own mind. Jane Austen could not have done what she did, particularly as a woman, without Shakespeare behind her. She learned principles. I mean, she, if you've read enough of her works, you know how important principles are. And who, who, um, what are the names? I've forgotten the names of the two sisters. Mary? Mary Who is it? Eleanor, yeah. Eleanor is the sensible one. Yeah. And she lives by principles, and her sister lives too much by her emotions, yeah, her feelings. And um, Okay, let's start. Um, I'm going to read a couple of lines that are sort of touchstone lines just to both root you in the text but also um, establish a couple of principles that are... Um, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, and um, I, you probably discovered by now that in the beginning, at the very beginning of our book, there's a list of characters. You already know that. Um, but one of the interesting things about the list of characters is that the, is that the writers have um, italicized the pronunciation syllable. So, for example, if you get, it's on page nine in the in the opening of my copy. I learned today from Suzanne. I thought there was only one page difference between our editions, but yeah, there can be ten or fifteen or twenty pages. But in the beginning, there's a list of characters, and if you look at them closely, you'll see an italicized syllable that takes the stress. So it says Karamazov, Smerdyakov, Smerdyakov. Um, svelte love, um, snidgerov, snidgerov. It's really interesting because the I tend to Anglican, Anglicanize. Is that right? Anglican, Anglicize my pronunciation, but and I've not I've not taught it in ages, and I've not worked with the spoken words, but. Um, but anyway, there's the pronunciation, if, if you ever wondered about them. Um, I want to take a couple of quotes from characters just as touchstones. And I'm just going to read them, and then I want to I make an opening statement about something important in my mind in the work. Snajirov says to Alyosha, when Alyosha was visiting, remember when he... Um, when he's sent to give him money and he discovers that the boy who attacked him is Snijirov's son. And the man says to him when he's describing his military service and he reached a point where he says, yes sir. It's in quotes. And he, he says it like one word, that it had become a word. I think I've given you that story with um, the department head of the college. 
Um, the, the, the sister who hired me, who's one of the great loves of my life, Sister Rosemary Julie, um, old-fashioned sister, and the, the head of the English department was a single woman, uh, middle-aged, and she came underneath the underpass one day and we were passing and she was muttering to herself going, and as she passed, I, I could make out finally what she was saying because she just came out from a meeting with sister. And she was going, yes, sister, yes, sister, yes, sister, yes, sister. She's going, it's one word, one word. <laughs> and if you remember here, um, the captain reaches a point in his life where he says, yes, sir, as if it's one word. And Alyosha asks, he's a man of truth. I mean, he's, he's, he's not attacking people. But he loves the truth enough to raise questions about things, and he asked him whether this was done um, willingly or unwillingly. And the captain's response was, I see that you're interested in contemporary problems. So even the captain has a sense that something's abreast, something's up, that he can name it, contemporary problems. It would be exactly the kind of expression we would use today. Um, Alyosha says to Lisa, um, responding to something Father um, Pacey had said, I think, if I remember, he said, my brothers are killing themselves. The Karamazov brothers are killing them. We're destroying ourselves. He's so upset at what's going on between Ivan and Dmitri because Ivan um, loves Katrina, Katerina and knows that she loves him, but neither one of them will admit it. Each one of them claims to love somebody else. Even Lisa declares her love for Alyosha, you know all this, um, but withdraws it. She's so embarrassed. All of them are very protective. Um, they're not good at being vulnerable. They want to protect them. They're all proud. So um, we're watching characters constantly struggling with love and what it asks of them. And in their pride, they tend not to allow themselves to be vulnerable. They'll cover it up, they'll hide it, or they'll change their minds or pretend. Um, and he says, the Karamazovs are destroying themselves. This is the earthly form of the Karamazovs, as Father Pacey puts it. It's earthly and violent and raw. So whatever we think of the Karamazovs, we're supposed to associate, at least through Pacey's mind, through something earthly. And I just want to call to mind that quote because it seems to me it's close to what St. Paul said when he said um, um, avoid the body, the things of the flesh. I don't think he meant don't have sex. I don't think that what he means. What he's saying is be careful of the power that you, you let the world have over you, the things of the world, the things of the flesh. Because once you do that, the world can take hold of you. It can, it can claim you. So the Karamazovs are associated with the earth. All, they all identify themselves as sensuals, every one of them. Even Alyosha says, I'm a sensualist. I'm as bad as my brother. That to me is a, um, an honorable thing, an admirable quality, because they're not trying to, for all their pride and everything they try to do, they still admit there's something earthly. They call themselves insects, the worst of the worst. Um, they relate to the world. Um, we know it in our church in the saying in uh, Lent, um, from dust you came to dust you re return. We are of the earth. That's what we're made. God raised us to something great, but we're of the earth. <coughs> Ivan, in his meeting with Alyosha, says of young Russian men, 
We need first of all to resolve the everlasting questions. This is a time in which everybody is struggling with metaphysical questions. That's been a, a theme I've mentioned now more than a few times. Um, here's the concern I want to raise with you guys today before we look at the text. I've said that I believe that the, the fundamental theme of Brothers Karamazov is um, a trial of faith. It's a conflict of faith. Um, Russia's been a holy nation, a united nation, even if it's loosely united. Its, um, its um, wholeness depends on its faith in God. But suddenly after um, Peter the Great made the changes he did, what he, what he did was introduce something artificial and arbitrary into the culture. He wanted to make Russia like Europe, but overnight. So while Europe came to its character over centuries and centuries of time, he wanted to transform Russia overnight. And the effect of that was disastrous. Um, all these Russians came under the influence of Western influence. They began to be embarrassed for themselves, particularly the peasants. They all look to another nation. Smerdyakov is the perfect example of this. They look to other nations because they thought they were more worthy and they were unworthy. And if they took on these airs, they tried to pretend to be somebody they're not, they'd be better. We all know that. I mean, it, America's tried to do away with that by doing away with class distinctions. That's one of the reasons we broke off from England, to do away with that sense of class distinction. Some people thought they were better than other people. The founding principle is inalienable rights the worth of every single individual under God. But here, so many of the, particularly the peasants, are left feeling inadequate or unworthy. That all these, particularly the educated people, are taking on all these airs. They're showing how educated they are and how better they are. That defines Smirjikov. He, he presents himself, particularly in the, uh, the chapter, The Man with the Guitar, he presents himself as having all these airs. He's educated, he's artistic, um, he's singing poetry. Um, he's talking about a possible duel, and the woman he's singing to says, oh, I love duels. I mean, it's sort of sick. She would take pleasure in watching men kill each other. Um, we're watching a people in the middle of radical changes who've lost their place, who don't know who they are anymore. Um, I quoted that line from the opening of Hamlet, remember who's there. Um, so, it's a crisis of faith. What Dostoevsky is rendering probably more powerfully than any other 19th century writer, and I say that, you're, you, I, I don't think most of you will appreciate this, but if you go back to the 16th, 17th century, to Don Quixote and Robinson Crusoe, Defoe, Fielding, and all, up to um, Jane Austen and Dickens and Eliot. I've said this before, if you look at those writers, almost all of them to a writer is critiquing a respect, the hypocrisy of, of a respectable world. We're not in a Catholic world anymore, we're in a Protestant world in which people measure themselves by their outward actions. They're all respectable. They've got good jobs, they make money. Those are indications in a Protestant world that they are among the saved. We looked at that directly in Hawthorne, right? Um, that's evidence of your faith. The Catholic world was never like that. The interior, the inward world was always more important than the outward. It's who we are inside. 
whether we love or not, or have faith or not. Were you thinking of Tom Jones when you mentioned Fielding? All of them. I mean, just any of them. Um, until we get to Dostoevsky, and then suddenly we have a man who's not just looking at respectability, although that's a principal concern, he's looking at spiritual realities under it. So in the opening scenes, we talked about this. Um, Fyodor and Musev are radically different. Musev lives by codes of respectability. He, and he, he thinks he's better than Fyodor because he does. He keeps apologizing for Fyodor. He keeps thinking he's better. He is um, fawning towards Zosimov. Um, so it's not that Dostoevsky's ignoring respectability. He's not. But he's looking at spiritual depths that no other writer did until his time. So if you look at, if you look at the novel as an indication of what's going on in society, and trace out the movement from, let's say, 16th, 17th century, from Quixote and Robinson Crusoe through Jane Austen and Dickens and up to Conrad. You're watching artists who are becoming more preoccupied with man's interior. That's going to be true of Henry James, it's going to be true of Conrad, and it's going to be true of Faulkner. Um, if, if, if I survive, we're going to do Faulkner, um, and we're going to come to the South. Why are you, what's that mean? Oh, okay. God, pray for me. Um, but the thing I wanted to stress here is this. What we're watching is happening globally, where a large industrial world is taking over an older traditional one. It happened in Japan, in South Korea, in the Philippines, um, Ireland, when Great Britain began to dominate. It happened in the South in America when an industrial northern culture won the war and dictated to the South how Southerners would be educated. It was out of that loss, this is really important, it was out of this loss that all the great Southern modern American writers came. Flannery O'Connor, Twain was just prior to that, but all the fugitives, the great fugitive poets, Tate, Ransom, Faulkner, there was this great outpouring. It was like a renaissance because an old way of life was being lost, taken over by another world. Okay? Now, here's the point I want to come to. Um, Christ asked his disciples to go out into a world, and the conflicts in the world at his time were very different from our own. There's parallels, but they're different. But he said, go out into the world, evangelize, take the gospel, the conflict that's at the center of most of the novels that I named, and certainly Dostoevsky, is around respectability, okay? Um, God, where my mind? Um, sorry, God bless. Boy, it just goes. It's getting, I may not make it. Um, no rest. Sorry. Christ sent his disciples out into the world. The great conflict from the 17th century through the 19th century when Dostoevsky is writing um, has to do with the conflict between church and state, largely church and state, and um, between um, science and religion. Right? We know that from um, Melville. We know it from Dostoevsky. We know it immediately, concretely from Dostoevsky. Is everybody following me? 
The great conflict in, in Melville is a Protestant Reformation religion that's corrupted in some ways, but new scientific views. That's explicit in Dostoevsky, okay? We're facing the same conflict in our age. The conflict that we inherited, the, that reached its peak, that's been my argument. You've seen it in the literature now, because we saw it in, in uh, Melville. It reached its peak in the 19th century, the conflict between two different ways of reading the world, religion, science. Two completely different ways, in conflict, yes? It's in conflict here. I, I just wanted to take another step today to show you how relevant Dostoevsky is to us. That conflict is still real for us. The terms of that conflict today are not so much pointedly religion and science. It's religion and science and technology. Because we live in a world in which people believe that through science and technology we can recreate our world in whatever way we want. And I quoted you the title of that book, How We Became Posthuman. So the conflict's not exactly the same as Dostoevsky's but it's similar enough to hold that in mind. So my question is, if Dostoevsky's book is about a loss of faith, a crisis in faith, what is it for us? What are we gonna do? I don't wanna just leave this in everybody's head as a piece of or literature. Dostoevsky is showing us there's a profound battle going on. We're in a similar conflict, an old world passing, a new one coming. Christianity is struggling to hold on to itself while there's a growing number of people leaving the church who find science far more compelling, far more reasonable, and believe that through our uses of technology and science, we can create a world of our own. I think we're worse. I think we're further along than that. For what? Well, because then... You mean the Dostoevsky? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's way worse this time because then the, 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 the conflict, the one that mattered, was what, what the leaders thought, what the elites thought. And now that's been something a long time here. Nothing believe. Yeah. It's only resident among the people. I agree, Chuck. And farther along. But the, the point that I wanted to make is, I just don't want to leave Dostoevsky in the past, because the struggle, what we're experiencing in brothers, is similar to what we're experiencing in our life. Very much. We should be able to find ourselves, even if the terms of the conflict slightly changed. That's my point, because. Because technology was not as advanced then as it's become. So we don't, does, there were few, we, let me put it, this is going to be too negative. We have more illusions about what technology can do. We think we can create virtual worlds. So we're facing shadows and ghosts in some ways far greater than even Dusty, the characters in his work. So that's all. I just, I wanted to underscore. The, the central issue is the passing of an old world and the coming of a new. And I want to mention two scenes just to make that concrete. One of them we looked at last week was Smerdyakov beating Grigory up. You know, we talked about the, um, the Balaam's ass and the ass parallel in the Bible. Um, and you can say that um, Ivan is Balaam and um, Smirjikov's the ass, you can also say that Smirjikov's Balam and Grigor's the ass because he beats him up horribly. Um, but that's a scene in which a new man, a product of these new enlightenment ideas, is tearing apart a man who has lived his faith and taken it seriously, 
but does not have the rational powers to answer it. And I want to single that out because it seems to me that's the predicament all of us in. If we grow up as Catholics and we take our faith for granted, we're actually giving in to this world. And we've been asked not to. So all of our work to bring faith and reason together is something absolutely crucial to us. And even though Dostoevsky's not, not going to proselytize in a scene like that, all he does is show these two characters. But you can't read it without thinking, my God, Smirjikov is reduced to helplessness. He can't speak. Hmm? Or sorry, Grigor. Yeah. That's one, just to hold on to a scene. Here's the other, and I want everybody to remember this. Last week we talked about an old world passing. Zosimov sent Alyosha out into the world. Said, don't steer, go out. So we're watching an old world pass and an image of something that's got to carry that old world forward into a new world. That figure is Alyosha. This is not a small matter for me because I'm going to raise a really critical question in a minute. But everybody's clear in that, right? What we're watching for the greater part of the action through the first half of the novel is Zosima's dying. It's symbolically, it's an image of this world dying, that man is dying. Even if we're not aware of a culture going to hell or dying, it's dying. The symbolic image of that death is Zosima. It's going to reach a crisis because in the middle of the book, um, lots of people within the religious order are going to have nothing good to say about Zosima, and Alyosha is going to go through a crisis of faith. So at the center of this struggle, this conflict, is this issue between faith and reason, an old world passing, how will it continue? Okay, I hope I said that strongly enough. Is everybody following? Okay, here's where it gets darker for me, and I, all I'm going to do is raise the question, I'm going to leave it, because we can't talk about it until the novel's over. Here's my question. Dostoevsky has rendered this world more completely than any writer that I know of in the 19th century because he's gone to spiritual depths no writer went to. Okay? You're seeing that. We're going to see demons and betrayals and all sorts of things um, and people struggling to live their faith. Zosimov is the moral center of the work. Alyosha's coming off that center. How well will that center hold when the world changes? Because the world that Alyosha enters is completely different from the one Zosimov lived in. Okay. Here's my question. The opening conflict in the discussion was the conflict between church and state. Whether one should absorb the other or not. Um, the Grand Inquisitor is going to take us directly back to that conflict. We're going to meet it again. But here's my concern. Dostoevsky has shown us this world passing and the dislocations it has set up in people. It's affected sexual relationships, marriages, personal relationships, faith, what people do with their faith, what they do with their powers of reason. Um, Ivan is an intellectual. He has no faith. It's one of the differences between him and Alyosha. Dostoevsky has rendered this extraordinary world in, in its passing. Here's my argument. So he shows us this world, there isn't the center of this book an argument in favor of socialism. Miyasu makes it in the beginning, right? He says the state should rule. And Ivan says, even though he doesn't believe in God, Ivan says, no, the church should rule. 
because it's only the fear of being excommunicated that will be strong enough to keep a, pr a criminal from acting. It's only that fear. It's not because he believes in God. So you've got somebody defending socialism, the state, and the church. Okay, that's, that's the context offered us in the beginning. We've got this novel about a people in the midst of a crisis losing an old way of life. We saw it in Melville, we saw it in Hawthorne, we see it here. Okay? Turn the page at the end of Brothers. Dostoevsky's last novel was Brothers Karamazov. It's at the end of the 19th century. Turn the page. The next page is Solzhenitsyn's The First Circle. And we're in a Russian writer who's actually writing about experiences of socialism. Is everybody following me? We're not in a socialistic world yet. We're in a world looking back to traditional Christianity. And we're, we're, we're aware that it's happened in Japan, the Philippines, Ireland, the South in America. It's happening everywhere. So turn the page and we've got Solzhenitsyn writing the first circle in his books. He's writing in a socialistic world. What happened between Brothers Karamazov and Solzhenitsyn? That's only a couple generations. It's just, it's no time at all. Is everybody following me? So my question, and I, it's outside the novel, and I know that. I don't want to get into it. But it's something I want you guys to be thinking about that we can talk about when we're done. Okay, it's not in the novel, so I don't want to, I want, my, my focus, even though I'm getting off of it right now, is the novel. But I want to ask this question. Turn the page. The novel's over. It's going to end on a really hopeful note. Alyosha's going to go out in the world, and he's got a young collection of boys who are inspired by him to live their lives differently. So the end of the novel is going to be, I mean, there's going to be a lot of dark things happening in this novel. It'll end on a note of affirmation. But turn the page. Russia's communistic. We, we left Melville, 18th century, or sorry, 19th century, we're in America. You know that the great push in America right now is towards socialism. So is there something for us to learn from this novel besides its literary merits? Is it prophetic in some way? If it is, what is it offering us? Let me stop. I hope that's clear enough and troubling enough. Is it, was that clear, the, sure. the concern I have? Okay. Because we're facing it, and if we're taking Christ seriously, go out into the world, and we're, and we're always dealing with the world in conflict, his disciples were, and the conflict was a certain kind in the 16th century in science and the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and we're dealing with aspects of that now, and now the terms have become more complicated and in some ways more compelling. We're moving away from a Christian faith. More and more people are leaving the church. What do we do? What do we do? Very serious question for me. Okay. Any comments or questions before we take a look at the text? Mary, I know you've got something. Come on. You've got seriousness all over your... Yeah. Who I love very much. Your oldest daughter. My oldest daughter. Yeah. Daughter, and she's 30 
Yep. Sunday, she lives in Saginaw, went over to her house, and she cannot understand why I will not move out of my little house in Keller and rent it. Think of the money you can get, Mom. She said, live with her. And I've told her, every woman needs her own kitchen. <laughs> Everyone wants her own kitchen? Every woman needs her, her own, own kitchen. kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to say it because I wanted to keep it general enough, but but implied in my statement, I'll, 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 I'll make it in a minute more specific, but implied in that statement, if the world, so intergenerational difficulties have been in existence forever, right? They've always been there, kids not getting along with their parents or, but so even though that's a given, that a new generation comes and, but when, when the changes are radical and there's no continuity with the past anymore so there's less continuity on which the kids can stand with their parents as they move forward if the break is really radical what do parents do with their kids so I was leaving in sort of general terms but I bless that damn courage of yours <laughs> that blessed blessed courage of yours um, it's a blessing you focused it. Um, I hope everybody's seeing this. So if you just take the sort of general statements I made, but narrow it down. I don't know of parents today who are not going to struggle. I mean, we've been beating our kids over the head as long as, you know, I'm, I'm more given to, I'm probably much worse than however your kids see you, Mary. But think about the problems parents are going to be facing with religious issues today if, if we're thinking how serious this is. Um, the, the people, the numbers leaving the church are not small. Um, the numbers of people who believe in real presence, not small. Miracles? We, actually, we're getting close to the Grand Inquisitor again. Anyway, that's, that's the overarching spirit. These people are, no matter what's going on in the surface of these characters, all of them are living with a buried despair. Something's unsettled. And it shows everywhere. Every love relationship, um, between parents and children. Um, put it in America because America is the political leader of the world and those problems will be exas exacerbated. Parents today are facing something much harder than they did a hundred years ago. If I could make a request now just in support of Mary because I love her courage if all of us could pray for Mary and her children, I wanted to bring that up of the marriage issue, and I, it was on my mind. I'm sure a lot of the other people, I hear it from people all the time. You have our prayers. I just want you to know that, yeah. Mary. Did you hear me? Yeah, thank you. Good. Thank you, but I'm, I'm not. Not but. Not no, wait, just not, not but. I'm not just leave it, just, just leave it at thank you. I don't want to hear that but. <laughs> not but. And. Thank you, and. If they need something, they come to me. You know, so. Yeah, right. Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. So. 
just I've got a Oh no, it's an ever-fixed mark. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although its height be taken. Love alters not, love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be air and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Shakespeare and Dante, I believe, were the the two most profound men in the world. The Bible says Solomon, so I have to go along with it. But next to Solomon, um, Shakespeare and Dante saw more because they were at the center holding that place where it's hardest to hold. So they would see things. Other, remember the still point in Boethius? They would see things others wouldn't. Just stay where you are. Mm -hmm. like a reading card, and I bought it, and I brought it, that's 1988, and I brought it, and I put it in a gold frame, and it's been sitting <laughs> on my dresser since 1988. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Let's go to here quickly. A couple of major themes along with the one that I've mentioned. All of you should go through the notes because I, they're pretty thorough and I think they'll help you with your reading. Um, one of the effects of this dislocation, this dissociation that's taking effect all over Russia is because man doesn't know who he is, he begins to question himself. I want everybody's attention to this. When you begin to question yourself, actually it's a healthy thing because what happens is you begin to step outside of yourself to look at yourself. Does Grieger ever do that? Grigory doesn't. He's not a reflective man. Hmm? Grigory. So, learning to step outside of ourselves to question ourselves is painful. We can't take anything for granted. Our world is falling apart. But when that happens, very often people find themselves playing a role. Theodore is playing a role. One of the one of the most important images motifs of the work is theater. One of the open, remember we talked about at the very beginning the girl who committed suicide because she wanted to be like Ophelia. There's this tendency in the Russians to dramatize everything. Constantly there's these allusions to a comedy. Somebody's putting on a comedy. Somebody's putting on a play. You're playing a role. So one of the effects of these dislo spiritual dislocations is to lose a sense of who you are and grasped play roles to not know who you are. Hopefully, when faith and reason come together, hopefully we become holy, not fractured, not dissociated, whole. And whoever we are then is more genuine. That's our call, yeah? To help us do that ourselves and to help others become whole, holy. So, the theme of um, theater, playing roles. Um, the Russians are, are typically characterized by their pride and their passion. They're very proud people. 
and pride is blinding. They don't see themselves very well. Um, they're constantly putting on roles, playing roles, without seeing the implications of them. The rich people who are established in their established worlds, they, they conventional roles, you know, um, usually doctor, the doctor or the lawyers or the, um, the military people. Um, um, when manners are taken away and people begin to realize that manners are not real, that they're artificial, they're, they're a help, but they're not the measure of things. Is everybody following? In, all, in the respectable worlds that we've been talking about, from Defoe up through Austin, the great critique is of a world of manners. People are hypocritical. Um, they don't go beyond that, Dostoevsky does. He's not saying manners are bad, but he's showing they're inadequate. That in, manners will not make the person. That, that people hide behind respectable roles. Miyasuv is probably the epitome of that in the book, but it, we see it generally. Um, when that happens, people revert to what's basic to them. And in this Russian world, it's their passions. They're constantly giving in to their passions. The women are particularly susceptible to their emotions. Feeling one thing and then another. Lisa is the, probably the best example of that, but Katrina and Grushenka. Um, Um, and because of the spiritual conflicts that people experience, they're subject to, they're often sick. Illnesses is a major theme of the book. Almost all the major characters get sick at some point. The sickness is not just an isolated thing. It was true of Jane Austen, it's true of Shakespeare, it's true of all writers. Jane Austen reworks this theme a lot. That when people are going through spiritual crises, they tend to be susceptible to illnesses. And that's true here. Um, so um, let me turn to the, the text. I want to start with um, two readings, or at least one, and then I want to go to the Rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor, um, because they are major for the work. In my 147, it's um, the two together. Alyosha um, wants to see Katrina. Katrina has asked to see him because she wants to know um, about Dimitri. She wants to have some sense of whether he loves her or not because she she believes that if he does, she can save him. That's been her position. Um, she needs to hear from him. So on my page 147, it's, it's in the, the chapter called The Two Together, about four or five pages in. I've known for a long time and for certain. I inquired by telegraph in Moscow and have long known that the money was never received. She gave him the 3,000 rubles, remember, to send to her sister, and he didn't. He used them and went on this um, orgy this Bacchanal with um, Grushenka. We're actually going to get it um, shortly. Last week I learned how much he needed and still needs money. I set myself only one goal. Um, she knows that he um, looks down on her. Um, she will be absolutely faithful to him. 
if she believes that he will marry her. I mean, let him be ashamed before everyone before himself, but let him not be ashamed before me. To God, he says everything without being ashamed. Why then does he still not know how much I can endure for him? Why, what does he not know me? How dare he not know me after all that's happened? I want to save him forever. Let him forget that I'm his fiance, and now he's afraid before me because of his honor. He wasn't afraid to open himself to you, she's saying to Alyoshi. Why haven't, um, why haven't I deserved the same? Everything Alyosha says to her confirms her in her belief that Dmitri loves her. And it's at that point, Grushenka comes out from behind the curtain, remember, and it becomes clear that the two of them, Katerina and Grushenka, have been together confiding in each other. And at this point, Katerina believes that Grushenka loves another man, that she doesn't love Dmitri, so Dmitri is free for her to love him. And this is what happens. <laughs> this is about 148, it's about five or six pages in. It's describing um, Grushenka coming out. What struck Alyosha most of all in this face was its childlike, open-hearted expression. Her look was like a child's, her joy was like a child's. She came up to the table precisely joyful, as if she were expecting something now with the most childlike, impatient, and trusting curiosity. Her look made the soul glad just to look at her with her seeming childlike openness. Alyosha felt it, but there was something else in her that he could not and would not have been able to account for but which perhaps affected him unconsciously, namely, once again, this softness, this tenderness of her bodily movements, the, um, the feline inaudibility of her movements, something quiet and sexual. Um, Grushenka comes out, Katerina is speaking highly of her, and Grushenka says, this is the bottom, 149, my dear worthy young lady did not scorn me, Grushenka drawled in a sing-song voice with the same lovely joyful smile. Don't you dare say such a thing to me, you, you enchantress, you sorceress. Scorn you, I shall kiss your lower lip one more time. Katrina is fawning on her because she thinks that Katrina has made it clear to her that she has no interest in Dmitri. Alicia blushed and an imperceptible trembling came over him as he watched this. Katrina is talking about Grushenka as an angel. You are too kind to me, dear young lady, and perhaps I'm not at all worthy of your caresses. Katrina goes on in this way, and then she takes Grushenka's hand and kisses it. 150. Um, it brought me happiness and resurrected me, and now I'm going to kiss it. Back and front, here, here, so she's effusive in showering her love on, showing her love. What? What she thinks is love. I hope it's clear. Is everybody clear, really, that Katrina's really in love with an image of herself loving? Um, yeah. Is that clear? She's infatuated with herself because she sees herself as rescuing him. So she's loving an idea. What she's really doing is loving herself. It's, you can call it narcissistic. I don't, but it's just... It, it, all of her language makes it clear that she wants to rescue him, she wants to do this for him, she can save him. She's the other side of enabling, or enabling, she's a, she's a rescuer. She elevates herself by thinking what she can do for other people, in this case, Dmitri. So she takes Grushenka's hand, and as if in rapture, she kissed the indeed lovely, perhaps too plump hand, and Grushenka three times. 
The latter offering her hand with a nervous, peeling, lovely little laugh, watched the dear young lady, apparently pleased at having her hand kissed like that. Maybe a little bit too much rapture flashed through Alyosha's head. He blushed. He's got a sense that this is overdone. Something's not quite right. Um, how could I possibly make you ashamed? Um, Katrina says to Grushenka. How poorly you understand me, Grushenka, but perhaps you do not quite understand me either, dear young lady. Perhaps I'm more wicked than you see on the surface. I have a wicked heart. I'm willful. I charmed poor Dmitri um, that time only to laugh at him. So she manipulates. She's using. Katrina doesn't see how she's manipulating. She's unaware of it. Um, uh, no, I never gave you my word. It's you who were saying all of that. Um, but I didn't give my word. Then I must have misunderstood you, Katrina said. You promised, I know my young lady, my angel, I promised nothing, Grushenka said. And then she turns, uh, just said, but I have just such a tender foolish heart. Think what he suffered because of me. What if I go home and suddenly take pity on him? What? That is, what if I turn my attention to him right now and Katrina has lost him? So suddenly Katrina has to face the prospect that she's been abused this whole time. Grushenka's using her and she, Grushenka might please herself by doing this just to put Grushenka, or Katrina down. Is everybody following? So this pride that runs through the characters, particularly here in the scene with the women. Um, and then what Grushenka does is she makes clear she's not going to kiss Katrina's hand which would be an insult. Um, she's putting her down. Do you know my angel? She suddenly drawled in the most tender, sugary voice. Do you know I'm just not going to kiss your hand? And she laughed a gleeful little laugh. As you whiff, what's the matter, Katrina said. And you can keep this as a memory, that you kissed my hand and I did not kiss yours. Something suddenly flashed in her eyes. She looked with terrible fixity at C Katrina. Insolent. Um, she calls her a slut and tells her to go. Um, Bot am I? You yourself, as a young girl, used to go to your gentleman to ask money. I mean, what they're doing right now is just spitefully trying to hurt each other. So, um, what seemed to be an amicable friendship forming, an intimacy, because one woman was giving herself up for another, turns out to be full of betrayals and violence. Um, I wanted to go through the scene where Smirjikov, um beats Grigory up, but I'm not, I don't want to take the time. I want to get to uh, um, the rebellion and the Inquisitor scene. But do you, you all remember um, Smirjikov's argument to Grigory? Sure. The ar Go ahead, Chuck. Oh, I mean, there's a long conversation at the dinner table where he's talking, when they were discussing the martyr. That, that one. It's where he's, he's, he's discrediting. Grigory's faith because if you had faith you could move a mountain. Oh yes, yes, and as well. So clearly there's no faith here at all because no one can move a mountain. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And the other argument he said, do you remember the other argument? Well that he could reject Christ and he had nothing to fear because at that point he wasn't a Christian. Right. He held accountable. So, so, so right. Does everybody remember that? He says, if, if I was faced with a decision to re renounce my faith in order to live, I'd renounce it. And, with, and by the way, you know that the Bible is full of 
Old Testament stories where the Jews had to face death or renounce yeah. or, or renounce their faith. And rather than renounce their faith, they would lose their arms or be put in a fire in Maccabees. Um, he, makes, he makes two arguments, actually. One is he says, wait a minute, think about all the good I can do if I lie just this once, and then I'll have a long life where I can do all this good. And then, but if you don't buy that, then I won't be a Christian again. Be yeah. very legalistic. Does everybody remember? So he, what he's saying is, um, it doesn't matter if I renounce my faith, because I got, if, if I renounce it, I'm not Christian anymore, and God won't punish me. Basically what he says. Just quickly, does anybody want to respond? In, Grigory can't. Does anybody want to just briefly respond to Svirjikov here before we go to Ivan? What's wrong with his arguments? Svirjikov's argument? Yeah. Well, he's contradicting the Lord. He's contradicting the Gospel. Go. Because uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and I had it, I had it, I don't remember what chapter. But, uh, Jesus says, uh, he who perseveres to the end will live. Yeah. And Christ says, you know, you've heard it said that if you get angry at a man, I, I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, I, if you lust, you know, if you murder. He makes it clear that the interior life is far more important than outward actions. And what's most important for God is how genuine your interior is. So if you're renouncing your faith, you're not to save your life. You're not going to a cross. You're not sharing a cross with Christ. So there were lots of arguments to make. Grigory couldn't because he's an image of an unreflective Christian, okay? And he's just demolished. I mean, it's just, um, he's wounded terribly. When you ask about the lie, you're like, God created lie on the first day and didn't create the moon and the sun. Right. Like, where did that light come from? Right, right, right. Oh my goodness. Right. Because that's a good question, but when you think about it, yeah. what I say is God is the light. Yeah. He the sun, the moon, not, the stars. the first one that's it, and there are others. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you cannot. Yeah, I mean, one is the the order of angels and light. You know that that light pre God's light pre-existed any created light, and angels partook. I mean, there's. But here, I want to go to two quick chapters uh, before we get to the. In book four, it opens with Father Fairpont, and I don't want to take any time except to say that um, he's presented as being radically different from either Father Zosimov or Father Pacey, right? Fairpont is different in being very ascetic. He doesn't eat much at all. He lives in a hermitage by himself. Um, he believes in devil. When he's visited by this monk, he makes a point of describing devils in a very comic way on a, you know, one devil having his tail caught in a door and another devil jumping on a man's. It's hard to tell whether he's being honest or not, but it seems to me he has a vivid sense of evil. He's very critical of Zosima. He's very critical of the, um, the um, institution of the elders. And in one way, I, I think we're supposed to see him as a parody of Zosimov. And the way the parody's been working here and the, you know, one person... Um, Smerdzikov's a parody of Ivan. Ivan's taught him everything he does. And as a matter of fact, that's going to play into the heart of the novel because um, Smerdzikov is going to use Ivan and his arguments as an excuse for what he does. I don't know where you are, so I don't want to, I don't want to go there, but 
Spiritual is a parody of, of Yvonne. Um, he uses his arguments, his own arguments, to do what he does. Fairpun is like a parody of Zosima. He lives by himself. He's very critical of the institution of the elders. He's very ascetic. How's he different from Zosimov in a, in a negative way that shows up Zosimov's goodness by virtue of the comparison? How's he different in a way that shows to his disadvantage that he loses something by not being more like Zosimov? Uh, contemptuous. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's, that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Father, Father Zosima doesn't. Yeah. I don't know if you got there, but after the Grand Inquisitor, the, the novel's going to, the center of the novel is going to be on Zosima. We're going to have a large section on Zosima's life, and we're going to see what it is that led to his conversion and made it possible for him to be the man he is today. Zosima has this living principle, he says to his fellow monks, and, and when you came here to be a monk, you either did this or you shouldn't be here. To come here means you're saying of yourself, you are the worst of the worst. He says of himself, I am the worst of the worst. It's only by seeing that you're a worse sinner than other people that you can love them as you should. And Therapont doesn't I mean he's full of contempt, he's too proud, sees himself as better than others. In every way, he, he shows how you can take a religious principle to an extreme in the wrong way. When he talks about when Zosima wasn't good because he had candy and he didn't fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, and he even goes so far to say it's because they eat bread the way they do that they show they're, um, they're tied to the devil. But eating, I mean, he condemns them out of his contempt because they eat bread. Um, that's a sign that the devil's in. So he's quick to see something demonic in somebody who doesn't, who isn't as ascetic as he is. Um, and the other thing that I think is important to note in the differences between, he lives in a hermitage by himself. Zosimov is receiving people. He, he, he's at work to help form a larger community, to help love grow. Fairpond is contemptuous and by himself. He lives for himself to pride himself in his asceticism when he gives up. Okay, I want to let's go to the rebellion. This is the chapter before the Grand Inquisitor. Um Alyosha and Lisa have just gotten engaged and um, Alyosha wants to find his brother Dmitri and um, he goes to meet Ivan at this restaurant. He's, by the way, the, the intervening chapter before he gets there is um, Smirjikov with a guitar and I'm hoping you all remember that he's, he's, he's a fop. He's got wax in his hair and curling it and in an effeminate manner, trying to put on an air. Um, um, Alyosha and Ivan meet, and it's the first time that the two have had any chance to know each other. So even though they're brothers, they're per perfectly estranged. On um, 
in this chapter, um, Ivan is telling um, Alyosha how much Katerina has wounded him because he knows that she knows he loves her, but she won't return the love even though he knows she loves him. So she's wounded him, he carries the wounds, he, he wants nothing to do with love, he's been wounded by it, he wants to get away. Um, on page 234, just as a um, topic, he says, well then what are they going to argue about seizing the moment in the tavern, about none other than the universal question, is there a God? So, we're going back to the opening question in the discussion among the men. Is there a God or not? Is, is the soul immortal or not? Which power should rule the church or the state? About none other than the universal question, is there a God? Is there immortality? And those who do not believe in God well, they will talk about socialism and anarchism because those are the political effects of a denial of God. About transforming the whole of mankind according to a new order, but it's the same damn thing. The questions are all the same, only from another end. So immediately they get down to business. They're going to talk about the most important things. And Ivan says, 235, um, as for me, I long ago decided not to think about whether man created God or God created man. Naturally, I will not run through the, all the modern axioms laid down by Russian boys on the subject, which are all absolutely derived from European hypotheses, because what is a hypothesis? There immediately becomes an axiom for a Russian. That is, for the European mind, these are theories. They're hypotheses. They're not proven. But Russians have taken them as if they're proven facts. So they speak about them with a certainty they, they, they don't have. Although if you think about the, like the European um, Enlightenment men, like Voltaire, Voltaire's not putting out things in, in the form of a thesis. He's proclaiming certain things. These people believe these things. Um, but the question becomes whether there is a God or whether the soul is immortal. Go to chapter 4, Rebellion. Ivan says that he has no trouble believing in men or loving men in the abstract. He's exactly like that, it's really interesting, he's exactly that, like that woman who met with Zosimov who said she can love men in general and, um, but she can't love a man in particular that she questions her own faith. Because he says here, what he can't allow is the suffering of children. Adult men and women refuse the apple, so they deserve their punishment. But not children, because they haven't done anything to deserve it. The more unprofitable for me, of course, but first one can love children, even up to close, even dirty or homely, children. It seems to me, however, that children are never homely. Second, I will not speak of grown-ups because apart from the fact that they're disgusting and do not deserve love, they also have retribution. They ate the apple, they're going to suffer from it. Now, to back up his arguments, he gives several examples of the suffering of children that have obviously left their mark on him. He, he can't get past it. And, and this, to me, goes to the very essence of what this whole novel is about. So pay close attention here. Are there true cases that that does actually happen? Yeah. You have a strange look as you speak, Alyosha said. By the way, a Bulgarian I met in, in Moscow, Ivan says, 
told me how the Turks and Circassians um, there in Bulgaria have been committing atrocities there. I'm assuming that the historical realities that he was referring to are the general um, attacks by the Islamic Turks um, just preceding this time, but it had gone on for centuries. Um, the Turks committing these atrocities. They burn, kill, rape women, children. They nail prisoners by the ears to fences and leave them like that until morning. In the morning they hang them and so on. It's impossible to imagine it all. Indeed, people speak sometimes about the animal cruelty of man, but that is terribly unjust. The offense to answer and offensive to animals. No animal could be so cruel as man. I, I, assuming that's clear, because animals don't have reason. We can use reason to make us wicked. Animals do whatever they do out of instincts. They're not intending to kill or harm, to be malicious to anybody. These Turks, among other things, have also a delight in torturing children, starting with cutting them out of their mother's wombs with a dagger and ending up tossing, nursing infants up in the air, catching them on their bayonets, before their mother's eyes. The main delight comes from doing it before their mother's eyes. Um, artistic, he says in it, by the way, there's that play on a metaphor again, that they're trying to do something as if they're playing a role, but it's inhuman. What are you driving at, brother? I think that if the devil does not exist and man had therefore created him, he has created him in his own image. <coughs> so he's arguing that man created God to have a God, and he also created the devil to explain his bad behavior. He talks about the way liberalizing um, movements have affected punishments. So he describes Russians who used to beat their donkeys with um, knotted ropes. By the way, one of the most famous passages in, in Dostoevsky is in uh, Crime and Punishment, and where a Russian is described beating his donkey practically to death because he got stuck in the mud. And, and he gives that same image here. Um, but he says, we've advanced, so we don't just beat people now with um, knotted ropes. We use birch trees, limbs, to spank them. Um, going over at my page 240, he talks about this man named Richard, who, who had a horrible childhood. He was neglected, not taken care of, um, and committed murders and was apprehended and sentenced to die. Um, initially, he denied his sin, wouldn't confess it, but after he was influenced by these Christian brethren, he finally um, confessed his sin, and then Ivan picks up the um, story then. He repented, he wrote to the court himself saying that he was a monster and that at last he had been deemed worthy of being illumined by the Lord and of receiving grace. All of Geneva was stirred. Um, down below on the same page is going to talk about the fact that this story was, was translated by a Lutheran evangelist. So Dostoevsky, or Ivan, is taking on Calvin in Geneva, because Calvin wanted to establish his theocracy there, and Luther. And he's been critical of Luther a few times now. Um, all of Geneva was stirred, all of pious and philanthropic Ge um, Geneva. Um, they say, the Genevans, 
You are our brother. Grace has descended upon you. And Richard himself simply wept with emotion. Yes, grace has descended upon me. Before, through all my childhood and youth, I was glad to eat swine's food. And now grace has descended upon me, too. I'm dying in the Lord. Yes, yes, Richard, die in the Lord. You have shed blood and must die in the Lord. Go down. This is the best day of my life, he says as he's going to his execution. I'm going to the Lord. Yes, cried the pastors, the judges, the philanthropists, ladies. This is your happiest day for you're going to the Lord. And it all, it's all moved towards the scaffold and carriages and, and on foot following the cart of shame that is bearing Richard. They arrive at the scaffold. Die, brother. They all cry out to Richard, die in the Lord, for grace has descended upon you. And so covered with the kisses of his brothers, Brother Richard is dragged up to the scaffold, laid down in the guillotine, and his head is whacked off in brotherly fashion. For as much as grace has descended upon him too, that's it. But it's quite typical. This pamphlet was translated into Russian by some Russian Luther, Lutheranizing philanthropists. So the, the major Reformation divines are together in this, those who are Lutheran and those who are Calvinistic. So he gives us an example, and then he gives one more example of parents who, who um, punish their daughter. Um, by t they beat her, flogged her, kicked her. They took her excrement. This is on 242. The mother could sleep while her poor little child was mourning all night. They put excrement all over her. Can you understand that a small creature who cannot even comprehend what is being done to her in a vile place in the dark and the cold beats herself on her chest, not knowing? Um, so he's giving these instances of actual events of people torturing kids, and in this case parents or adults. The last one he gives is, deals with a lord um, who is wealthy and landed and, and has a pack of hunting um, hounds and a boy who wounds one of his dogs with a stone. And when he finds out who did it, um, he, um, he locks the boy up um, and then in the morning he takes him out. This is 243. The journal orders them to undress the boy. The child is stripped naked. He shivers. He's crazy with fear. He doesn't dare make a peep. Drive him, the general commands, the huntsman shout, run, run, the boy runs, sick him, screams the general. He hunted him down before his mother's eyes and the dogs tore the child to pieces. I believe the general was later declaimed incompetent to admit his state. Well, what to do with him? Shoot him? How's that gonna you know, bring the boy back to life? Um, Bravo, Ivan yelled, even if you say so, a fine monk you are, see what a devil um, um, Alyosha is saying shooting him, but um, Alyosha says, what do you know? Where are you going? I don't understand anything, Ivan went on as if delirium, and I no longer want to understand anything. I want to stick to the fact I made up my mind long ago not to understand what he does is feel pity for these children, um, and the horrors that he's illustrating are awful. Um, what, what he says when he ends is this, he says, um, I do not finally want the mother to embrace this tormentor to let the dogs tear up her sons because the Christian call is to forgiveness. Um, I assert beforehand that the whole of the truth is not worth such a price. I do not finally want the mother to embrace the tormentor who let his dogs tear her son to pieces. She dare not forgive him 
Let her forgive him for herself if she wants to. Let her forgive the tormentor her immeasurable maternal suffering. But she has no right to forgive the suffering of her child who is torn to pieces. She dare not forgive the tormentor. Um, and he says, and it's interesting that the metaphor once again is theater. Um, I, I refuse this. It's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha. I just most respectfully return him the ticket like it's all a play and he's going to give it back. Alyosha says this is rebellion and uh, it's at that point that um, Ivan disagrees with him and said, I've written a poem and I want to tell it to you now. It's, or he's not written it, he knows it by heart and he's going to tell it to him. I want to take just one minute. Any comment on Ivan and what it says about him and the way that he looks at the suffering of innocence. And by the way, remember, the great theme, it's very different. The great theme of Boethius was what was, Boethius is going to die. And he, the question he poses to Lady Philosophy is, why do the innocent suffer? Why do good people suffer? And why are evil people rewarded? That was the fundamental question. It was the Job question again, and this is the Job question. Why, why does God allow suffering? And on a scale like this, but any, any comments on Ivan and your sense of him at this point? We're, we're going to do the Grand Inquisitor right now and go through the main parts of it. Characterize Ivan. Well, he's flummoxed. Start with he can't, he can't reason, he can't resolve it. Reason is failing him. How would reason re resolve it, Chuck? Well, it wouldn't, but that's his tool. Anybody else? To me, it's one of the most painful chapters in the whole book because it just gives these horrible accounts. And I read a book a short time ago called The Scimitar and the Sword. It's a description of the Islamic conquest of Europe from the 17th century to the 15th century. It's just nothing but city after city after city bringing a city to its knees and only sparing them if they converted from Christianity to Islam. And the horrors um, performed um, are on a scale like this, all of them, mutilations, ripping entrails out, peeing on altars, desecrating nuns and sticking their bodies. I mean, it's just the desecrations were. So what, um, what Ivan is describing it has occurred in historical fact. Some of it by religious, from a religious motives, he's going to go to the Grand Inquisitor, that's a Catholic Inquisition. But all of it just man being brutal to man. Any other thoughts about Yvonne? Okay, hold on. Let's, let's do the grand. I'm going to do this quickly. Because I've got some tough questions. He says to Alyosha that he's written his poem, and like poems written in earlier ages, if you, we know this from the epic, from the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Dante. In all earlier poetry, poets invoked a higher power to come down to tell the story. If they were going to deal with divine things, they needed divine help. That was just a principle of all the literature, up, up to the Renaissance, up to modern time. And he says he's doing the same thing, except in this case, the power that comes down um, to help with the story is Christ himself. 
Christ comes down during the Inquisition, this is in Spain, in Seville, um, the, the Jesuits and the Catholic Church are basically um, punishing heretics for their heresies. I'm not sure how accurate this is because I'm, I'm, if anybody knows, jump in, but do it briefly if you can. I know that heresies or heretics could be um, imprisoned. As far as I know, it was only the secular arm that came in to actually kill people um, in the name of the church, but I'm, I'm just going to... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, like Savonarola would exhort, but it wasn't the church that burned. You know? Yeah. But at this point, a hundred people were executed. Christ comes down, and the first thing we see him do is perform two miracles. He heals a blind man, and there's a procession um, to bury this young girl in a coffin, and um, the family gathers and asks that he um, raise her from the dead, and he does. The Grand Inquisitor witnesses this, and he knows that it's Christ, so he, um, he takes Christ prisoner and puts him in jail, and then um, he comes to visit him that night. He's a 90-year-old man, and he says to Christ, this is the beginning of the chapter, is it you? This is about four or five pages in, in the middle of the page. Is it you? But receiving no answer, he quickly adds, do not answer, be silent. After all, what could you say? I know too well what you would say. And you have no right to add anything to what you've already said. Um, Alyosha interrupts because he's shocked to hear what Yvonne's saying. And he's, um, he says, I don't understand. Um, it's boundless fantasy of some mistake on the old man's part, some impossible quid pro quo. Quid pro quo usually means I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It can also mean a likeness so that um, that the, the Grand Inquisitor is putting himself in the place of Christ. Um, but Alyosha is shocked at what he's hearing. The basic argument is that Christ came and offered man freedom um, and man was too weak to accept the burdens of that freedom. And he goes to the temptations of the desert. You remember we spent a good amount of time on that. I can recall that now. The three temptations where he comes to Christ and said, um, if you're God, turn these stones into bread and men will worship you because you'll satisfy. And I don't think it's just bread. I think bread means all material goods. <coughs> if you give them this, <coughs> they will worship you. <coughs> You'll perform a miracle. The second one um, was the devil taking him to the top of a temple and saying, throw yourself down and the angels of God will rescue you. And Christ says, you don't tempt God. And the third one is he takes him to the mountains and says, all of this will be world. All, all the cities of the world, you can rule over them. You'll have authority over the, all of them. Just worship me. And he says, um, you can only worship God, not anybody else. The basic argument of, the, of Ivan is that, that no other, and we, I, we took this position when we, no other, no other acts could ever express a divine understanding of things as well as those three temptations because they covered everything. No man could have created them. 
is Yvonne's argument. I, I think on that he's absolutely correct. He, correct. he says, this is on 252, to think up to advance three questions such as would not only correspond to the scale of the event, but moreover would express in three words, in three human phrases only, the entire future history of the world and mankind, it can't be done. But he says, what you did with it um, left man in an impossible position because only a few people will be able to do what you did. The rest of the men will do everything they can to avoid it. And he said, the Catholic Church has taken that ordeal on itself and um, left man free of those burdens. So he's got food, he, um, he doesn't have to worry about uncertainties or miracles or authority. So as much as he wants those things, it's all been relegated over to the church, the Catholic Church. Now let me try to read a couple of phrases here to see. Um, Um, on 253, the people say, feed us, for those who promised us fire from heaven did not give it. That's Prometheus. Then we shall f finish building the tower. Oh, never, never will they feed themselves without us, without the church. The, the church is, Ivan's presenting it. No science will give them bread as long as they remain free, but the end they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, better that you enslave us, but feed us. They don't want to struggle for survival. If they give themselves to the church and the church takes care of all of that, they will give their consent to the church. Um, on page um, 255, there are three powers, only three powers on earth capable of conquering and holding captive forever the conscience of those feeble rebels for their own happiness. These powers are miracle, mystery, and authority. You rejected the first, the second, and the third and gave yourself as an example of that. But the dread and wise spirit set you on a pinnacle of the temple. He goes through them and he said you rejected them at all. When you did that, you put man in an impossible position because he'd have to do what you did and you can't expect that of human beings. He's expecting too much of them. So what the church did is turn it take its powers from the devil, so the church is serving the devil by taking on itself all of those burdens. So man doesn't have to worry about mystery, miracles, or authority. It can, um, it can kneel down before the church because the church will take care of all of those. Um, going over on page 257, exactly eight centuries ago we both took from him what you so indignantly rejected from Satan. The last gift he offered you when he showed you all the kingdoms of the earth, we took Rome and the sword of Caesar from him and proclaimed ourselves so rulers of the earth, the only rulers, though we have not yet succeeded in bringing our cause to its full conclusion. But whose fault is that? Oh, this work is still in its very beginnings, but, but it has begun. There is still a long wait before its completion, and the earth shall have much to suffer, but we shall accomplish it and we shall be we shall be Caesars, and then we shall think about the universal happiness of mankind. And yet you could have taken the sword of Caesar even then. Why did you reject it? So he's accusing Christ of doing a bad thing, of failing men because he was expecting too much of it. And the Catholic Church um, took up those burdens, served Satan, and that's what it's doing today on page 260. It's Rome and not even the whole of Rome. That isn't true. 
They are the worst of Catholicism, the Inquisitors, the Jesuits, but there could not even possibly be such a fantastic person as your Inquisitor. Ilyosh is saying, what you're saying is too much. It might be true of some Catholics and even of Rome, but it's not all of them. They're not that, not all of that. They're simply a Roman army for a future university, earthly kingdom with their emperor, the pontiff of Rome. <clears throat> That's the argument in its, um, in its force. You know that Dmitri or Ivan will say, there is no God, everything's permissible. Um, you mean everything's permitted, everything's permitted, is that right? Ivan says yes. So Ivan's taken the position that there is no God, if there is no God, everything's permissible. This goes back to the opening argument, if you, if you remember. Remember, when the book began, the men were in a debate over his essay. In that essay, he was saying, the church has to absorb the state, because it's only when it does that, and men are threatened with excommunication, that they'll have a, um, an incentive great enough to keep them from sinning. So right here, he's just laying out that argument. Here's what you did, Christ. Um, you failed us. We serve, this, um, the Catholic Church does, Satan. And we're right now in progress of moving towards that end. That is, of, of the church absorbing the state to carry out these punishments. But buried in it is his disbelief in God and his disbelief in the immortality of the soul and his belief that if there is no God, everything's permitted. So, is everybody following? Those are core beliefs, but he's making an argument in an, in an attempt to, to answer the injustices of the world. So, what do you make of Ivan? Um, and the Grand Inquisitor scene, and the criticism of Catholicism. I'm assuming that a lot, of, a lot of Russians would agree with him. Remember that in Russia, the Orthodox Church is dispersed. There's no, um, what's the word, bureaucracy. There's no central authorities. It's divided so that sections of Russia can go against other sections because there's no unity. It's diffused. It's broken up. Zosim is dying. We're watching other monks take over who are not going to carry forward what Zosim is leaving. I mean, we're watching a world break up, and part of it's religious. So what do we do with the Grand Inquisitor? What is the, what is the one, what's the one thing motivating Ivan that should make us question his arguments. What, what's behind his presenting the, the rebellion part, you know, the, in, the examples of the suffering, the innocent suffering, and then what he does in the Grand Inquisitor. What's, what's motivating him? If, if, it's, if there's no God, somebody has to take care of it, has to take care of the order of the society, so that's when the state comes, right? They comes to take care of everything. So he's giving you the reasoning why the state should come and be totalitarian and take care of everything. Except that he's saying the state he's saying the state should be absorbed by the church, that the church should assume this character. So the Grand Inquisitor is actually putting into effect, you know, we're in progress, we're on the way, it's not there yet, and 
it's not what it seems. He's not a heartless atheist. He loves mankind. In abstract. He might well, yeah. yes. I see in that he, he believes there is a God that man created that is a bad God. <laughs> he's not good at all. And this is what he's left us with. You know, there's a couple of passages, too, in which he misquotes scripture. I mean, people do this a number of times during this. In one passage, what he says, how does it go, Doctor? That, how does he put it, the, the misquote that you, that if, if, if you believe in, if you believe your God come down from the cross. He says to him, um, if you want to know if you're the son of God, throw yourself off this pinnacle. Is that it? God will protect his son and nothing will happen. So throw yourself off and prove to you whether or not you're the son of God. Is everybody following? It's as if he reframes it to show that there may be a doubt in Christ about whether or not he's God. So if you want to, if you want to prove yourself, so there's a there's a, a modern element of this equation that knowledge equals power. If you don't know that you're God, if you do this, you'll find out. That's a modern equation. Every the modern world is based on that equation. Knowledge equals power. The more you have, the more you know about something, the more you can control it. So he recasts a scene in scripture to fit a modern reading. If you have any doubts about along that line, the biggest thing that I was getting out of this was the things that he said about what people do is exactly what's going to happen in Russia and what is happening here, where um, people don't really want freedom. That brings you have to make choices and responsibility, and they're willing to uh, surrender that freedom and responsibility taken care of. Yep. Politically, what's the form that's called, and Socialism. Yeah. When, well, this, go back to my question. What's, what's the motive underlying both of those chapters, the, the rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor? What's the motive? What's, what shapes, what, what emotion, what gives rise to his way of looking at the world the way he does? Wait. Anybody? He's a lot more subtle than the, He does have a gender. You can say it's generalized towards uh, mankind and not people individually. Yeah, maybe that's true, although he does love Alyosha. But he has a genuine love for mankind. And he thinks it's a kindness to enslave him. It's a kindness not to put this burden of freedom on him. That's where socialism falls into his program. And it's a, now, out, step outside that, Dostoevsky is criticizing that. Here, let me, let me, let me, if I can, Chuck, rephrase that for a second, because I want to take up what you just said. When I read The Grand Inquisitor, it's impossible for me to read that without thinking. It's probably the best defense of socialism I've ever heard in my life. Ever. That, I mean, the, what, what motivates Ivan in everything he does is an excessive pity. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, 
Where reason comes in this is a larger question, but right now I want to just settle with it. What motivates him is pity. Absolutely, he's, over, he's overwhelmed at the suffering of the world. He can't, he can't distance himself from it. It absorbs him. There's nothing... So, set Portia... I mean, I keep going back to Shakespeare, what does when she's faced with difficulties, or Hermione, or any of the other... The one thing that motivates him is pity. And it may look like love, but it's not. And remember from the beginning, we've talked about this. Pity is the most enabling passion. So we, when you watch this suffering to eliminate it, you give up all these things for the sake of security, and you don't have to worry about these things. Anne said it, I mean, right on, she nailed it. I mean, people don't want freedom because it's a burden. People don't want burden. So even as much as they long for, and everyone says it, as much as they long for authority, mystery, miracles, they're willing to give those up because the burden of carrying those is too great. So in order to be free of that, to be comfortable or secure, they give it to the church. And in this case, the church is going to do it. But what we've got in his example is the beginning, I mean, the, the first beginnings of a socialistic state. Turn this power over to somebody else so you'll be relieved of it. And a number of you have said that right now. It's taking the enabling that goes on in a family and enlarges it by defining a state that way. Now here's my question, and it's a really serious one, and we don't have time, but hold on to this as we move forward. We're going to go past the Grand Inquisitor when we meet. Um, is this Dostoevsky's view, or is he, is he presenting Ivan's view as one that should be rejected? Because remember my opening comments, the next page to brother is um, Solzhenitsyn, and we're already in a socialistic Russia. Russia is communistic. What happened? How do we get there? And what we're left with here is the Grand Inquisitor and the rest of Dostoevsky. But my question, and I mean, to go to, if I could re-put it or turn it a little bit, Chuck, is, um, is this Dostoevsky's view, or is the way he's presented it, um, it, does the way that he presents it leave us questioning it it's or refuting it? That one, questioning it. He's, go ahead. Yeah, he's setting it up as. Uh, as he opposes it. I mean, it's not Dostoevsky's view. He's, he's expressing Ivan's view, uh, but it's not his own. Dostoevsky would reject that. He would say, oh, no matter what the cost, freedom is the ultimate Okay, hold on to this, because it's going to, because my question is, and I can't wait to get there almost for you guys. Um, how much of Dostoevsky's view of the world is rooted in pity at the expense of reason? How much does Dostoevsky trust reason? Because I'm putting it seriously now, I mean, for all of our concerns. All of these Russians are being influenced by these intellectual ideas coming from the West. So all of them seem to be making an appeal to reason. We just went through an apologetics session where we were trying to pull reason and faith together and looking at the nature of reason, Lewis and Chesterton particularly, when they were arguing against men who were using reason in a way that would lead to enslavement. Because Chester and Lewis are saying, these men are using reason, but what they're proposing will enslave us. They'll take away our nature, using reason. And they're using reason to defeat those. Grigory can't answer Smirjikov. So we're watching Ivan being torn apart, lacerated, 
um, by his experiences of suffering in the world. He's horrified by what humans do to humans. And it's, it seems that you can't come out of this without feeling the pity that he feels for innocent lives lost. Set that against Boethius, set it against Portia, I mean, wherever we're going to go. Um, how much of what motivates Dostoevsky is motivated by love, how much of it is motivated by pity? You mean, you mean Ivan? In the novel, as, as a writer. And that's a, I mean, that's a tougher question because we've got a whole novel to... But we're dealing with people who are being overcome by rational philosophies, seemingly liberal, new, coming into um, conflict with old traditional ways of acting because they're religious. I think it's pretty clear because anyone who really believed what Vaughn said would not characterize what is being given up as freedom because that's an innate good. They would put it some other way. Who, they, what? Anyone who, Dostoevsky does not believe what Ivan believes. He's setting up as an example of something to be rejected. It's pretty clear because he phrases what is being lost or what is being relinquished, given up willingly, as freedom. No one who, who is really in favor of that view would phrase it that way because freedom is an innate good. It's very, very hard to get someone to accept the idea that, yeah, giving up freedom is a good thing. So that, that carries a seed, that, that gives you a clue right there that he doesn't buy it. He's just getting Ivan's argument. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, but because, let's... Because what they'll say is what really freedom is, they'll do what, I don't know, Eleanor Roosevelt did. Freedom from want. Freedom from fear. It's not freedom. That's how people who really believe that talk. They don't talk the way Ivan talks. Yeah. Hold on to that, because we've got a novel ahead of it. And, it, and it's, it's because Russia ends up socialistic. It's communistic. So I, I hope this is being clear because I, there's a lot that I have a sense is obscure and not easy to understand but I want everybody to wrestle with these things. Um, Dostoevsky is dealing with matters of church and state. Um, he's dealing with the breakup of a family, a, the breakup of a country. Russia is losing its traditional belief. It, the, the, the central theme of, of Brothers is a crisis of faith. Faith is being lost, it's dying out. During this whole episode, this first half of the novel, Zosima's dying. We're watching the world pass. We're supposed to feel that. And it's passing um, under the force of these intellectual ideas, you know, that are moving across Europe and taking root in Russia. Same thing is happening today. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad to be doing this. But how do we stand with these sort of basic issues about freedom and the, the role that pity plays in what we do in our lives the, role, the importance of freedom, the importance of reason, what we do with reason. Um, Chuck touched on it earlier, but it's too soon to go into it. But how, how would we describe Ivan's use of reason? I don't want to go into this right now. I'm just raising questions because he's so overwhelmed by pity. Um, so here are some major issues right here. We're moving towards the center of the book. The next section will deal with Zosimov, and we're going to look at his life and what formed him. So we've got, so far we've got a good sense of Dmitri, Fyodor, and Ivan. Alyosha's been present, but we've not concentrated on him. But all that's going to happen here with Zosimov will bring out his character and um, give us a better sense of Alyosha because he's going to go through a crisis too. So um, we'll meet next week. Two weeks we take off because the church is going to be closed. I the 15th, I think it is. It's two, two weeks from today. It's the, um, 
It's the assumption. So in two weeks we won't meet. That means you'll be able to finish the book because I know that's you're all going to be wanting to read. Anyway, two weeks we won't miss. Next next week we deal with Zosima and the whole Zosima story, which is central to the. Because in that story, we're going to get a story as if it's living now. Alyosha is going to go through a crisis, but in this first half, he's dying. Something is passing, and we're going to find out exactly what that is next time.